you get told by all the way from your friends and family to people that are outsiders that, you know, no, no, listen, I, I get you want to do this, but this is where you're supposed to be and you need to follow this path because this will be a nice safe route so you can have this and you can have health insurance you can have everything else and make sure that you know you have a couple of kids and live in a cul-de-sac and blah 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 and you know, and all this all these amazing things are all going to happen because you were safe and you were stayed in your box in your safe space and everything was honky dory you know and it, it's a shame that you know society puts that on so many people and it works Hey, this is uh, Sam Mushman, a comedian, former college basketball player, and co-host of the Backcourt Violation radio show and podcast. And uh, this is the Heads and Tails podcast. Excited to be a part of it. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week, we're interviewing Sam Mushman. He's one of my buddies from growing up. We played baseball together, and we I think we kind of left off at, at middle school in Mrs. Azetta's Definitely. Uh, Spanish class. It makes sense we left off in middle school because you pronounced my last name wrong, but I'm glad that we were childhood friends. <laughs> so how should I do <laughs> it? Mushman? Yeah, it's like, it's, mush, it, it's a horrific, it's an Ellis Island messed up. I'm pretty sure it was supposed <laughs> to be Musman, and then like they came over from Denmark and Ellis Island was like, we don't care enough to get it right, so they just put Mushman <laughs> And that's where we are. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it has been since eighth grade. Um, <laughs> but no, dude, you used to say, like, call me Mushy. Like, that was your nickname. I remember this, dude. Don't yeah. Know. I mean, in high school, uh, it was Mush. But I guess uh, I guess we're, we're still giving more and more better reasons why I left Long Valley. Because if I kept Mushy, that would have been that would have been a tough one to stay behind once I hit more puberty and got, got into a young adult. And my nickname was Mushy. It was kind of a little aggressive. But. Yeah. I, I'll give you that. Um, but continuing the intro, uh, Sam was a college basketball player. He went to two Division two schools, worked under five different head coaches. So that was obviously a, a struggle for any athlete to try to, you know, make those transitions. And also he may had an interesting transition to life after sports, which is something that we talk about a lot on the show, in that he became a comedian. And I think that takes, like, more balls than anything. You know, like, I'm afraid to – when I first started doing podcasting, I was, like, nervous to do that, and I could edit everything. Yeah. Even now I'm, I get nervous, like, speaking in front of other people. I'm like, but with the added pressure of making people, you know, trying to laugh, you know, that that's even harder. Well, when your goal is to be professional, I mean, there's a little bit of nerves with that because, you know, when you when you do this for too long and you just go up on stage and you're like, what am, what am I going to talk about tonight? I'm just going to start ranting about what it, what's ever on my mind. When you hit that breaking point, it's it, it actually becomes, in a, in a psychotic way, a lot easier than you really? you think. But I, I'm, uh, I'm interested to, to hear <laughs> to hear more about that. I respect what you're doing, though, man. This podcast is great. It's such an inspiring podcast when you're looking for a good sports story and a comeback story. I mean, yours alone, too. It was great having you on Backcourt Violation. First of all, I want to say that, and you know, hopefully, at some point, have you back again. Right, and to, to finish up the intro, you also are uh, host or co-host of the the backcourt violation. Is it podcast, radio show? Yeah, it's Both? like a, it's yeah. it's whatever you want it to be. You yeah. know, how's that going? Like, it's going good, man. Actually, it's, it's I'm pretty excited about what we're doing with the upcoming season with it. Um, you know, last year. We did a lot of, uh, you know, the theme, obviously, you got two working comedians that both played Division Two basketball, and now we're talking about it in, in a more, you know, light kind of comedic, off-the-court kind of way. We love diving into stories that, you know, your average student does, doesn't realize that a college athlete goes through on and, more importantly, off the court. And, uh, you know, the first season was good. We, we interviewed a – it was funny. We, we interviewed a handful of, like, Division One coaches and players and Division Three coaches and players, and we didn't really – focus too much on the actual level that we played at because a lot of people don't realize what division two is all about and this season we have a number of college coaches from some of the local d2 conferences coming on the show we're looking forward to having them and also uh getting even more involved with a couple programs in particular maybe covering a game or two and uh trying to really be an outlet for a couple of schools that pretty cool want to talk more about how their season's going because obviously not everybody has their own network or own thing so we're trying to take it more in that direction 
Awesome. Um, while we're on the topic of Division Two basketball, you know, I feel like there's almost like a stigma with Division Two sports. Like people like don't really know. Like you know the Division Three schools, you know the Division One schools, but yeah. those those Division Two schools are kind of that middle ground. So can you kind of talk about you know your decision to play Division Two and you know was it like a ego thing or like did you want to play D one? Like can you kind of take us through that that process? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you first of all, if if it's if there's no if you say there's no ego involved in your college decision, you're lying to yourself. I mean, obviously in high school, everybody's the star player in their town or their region, whatever. Hundred point score at Pope John. Oh, uh, nice yeah. little shout out. Um, to let the viewers know I kind of made sure Kevin knew that before it started. <laughs> so you know he looks like a badass for saying it, but I kind of slipped that one in for him. But uh, <laughs> anyway, no, yeah, yeah but I like, didn't prepare that. but but <laughs> but Kevin, like you know, it's true, obviously. With, with, you know, your uh, playing career at, at West Morris, I mean, everybody's a big fish in a small pond in high school, and it's like when everybody starts competing for where are you going to fall at the next level, you want to play at the highest level possible. That that being said, you know, um, you also got to be a realist, and I think that was one of the advantages I had. I had two parents that were very honest with me. They would tell me when I'd have a great game and when I had the potential to do something. And just on the flip side, they, they would be the first ones to let me know that I'm either not working hard enough or I'm not as good as I think I am. And all of that, which is honestly I couldn't be more thankful for because right. it kept me grounded. And then in the in the decision process, when I was deciding between – you know, a bunch of really solid Division Two scholarships that, you know, I had a, a chance to play, play some minutes and really have a, a solid career, as well as a couple, you know, one or two small Division One offers that felt a lot more of like a roster filler than it did an actual, like... like they wanted you. Like, you know, more of one of those like, hey, we got this scholarship, we got 14 scholarships on the on the team, Division Twos only have eight, you know, you want to be the 13th guy and uh, be a part of something that you'll never see on the court, you know, right. and, 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 and I, I kind of did feel like, you know, my my the type of game I play and the level that I'm at, it would make a lot more, it'd be a lot more enjoyable to still to play a good level Division Two ball, you're still playing those D1s every year, but um, I think I it gave me the opportunity to you know, have more of a of a playing career on the court and be able to, you know, have more of a rewarding career instead of being on the bench. So, I mean, like, that's a decision that I made, to be honest with, with myself. You know, I think I fit much better in a Division II level, and, and I, it turns out I, I, I definitely did. So, okay. you know. Cool, man. Um, so before we get into, like, your actual career and whatever obstacles that you had during your college career, you eventually made the decision, because we played baseball together growing up, right? Mm -hmm. So you eventually made the decision to just focus on basketball. And that's a topic that comes up a lot on the podcast too, is this idea of sports specialization. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have to specialize in order to succeed? Does it lead to injury? You know, do you get burned out? You know, what was your experience by choosing not to play baseball anymore? And for everyone who's listening to this, Sam is what? You're six foot eight, nine? The six 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 seven. Oh. Uh, the, well, it feels the media, like that. The media guide said six eight because you know that extra game of inches is is, is good to put on paper. But either the way, day, he's I'm a tall ass yeah, dude. I'm so a like, tall ass guy. If he was a pitcher, you know, it's a pretty imposing. Uh, you know, yeah. The, I mean, uh, the fact you bring that up, it's. I mean, I know we had some great years uh, playing baseball together growing up, and yeah, six foot six left handed pitcher, pretty much equivalent to being about seven three in basketball as far as natural ability. Um, to say that. Uh, not the not so much the way that I chose. I don't regret choosing basketball. Um, but if you want to talk about the one regret I definitely do have in life, and I think it's when people do admit it to themselves, it's healthier to say. You know, <laughs> I live my life with no regrets. Don't get me wrong. But um, the way that I shun baseball from my life is uh, definitely a regret. Um, you know, it it's it, it didn't. The AAU scene got to my head where you needed to be all summer in the front. The Linden Ballers, dude. I remember. Yeah, man, that team, I mean, you're talking about a team that produces where, you know, the hometown of Muhammad Wilkinson, and that's just one of the names to say many, that that is a sports crazy town, and I had the opportunity to play on a team there and get seen by a bunch of coaches, and you just get lost in that whole funnel. Um, and did it help me get a scholarship to play basketball? Absolutely, but at the end of the day, you know, I think I could have gave baseball more of a chance, and, uh, you know, th that would be the one thing that I look back on and, and kind of wish I did a little differently. Um that being said, though, you know, my first love was basketball, and it always will be. Um, you know, I'm a student I'm a student of the game. That's why I love hosting backcourt violation. You know, um, outside of pitching, I really didn't have the same respect level for the game of baseball. It didn't interest me. I didn't enjoy it. The thing I enjoyed the most when I wasn't pitching was probably on the bench BSing with you. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, you know, I, I couldn't hit to save my life. It was just an embarrassing scene for all parties involved every time I went to the plate 
parents watching. They cringed. My teammates were like, okay, when is this dude just going to break down and cry because he's that much <laughs> of a bad hitter? But, I mean, you know, I'm just I'm just messing. But at the same time, yeah, you know, I, I, I do I do wish that I, uh, you know, look, saw through baseball a little more. But I don't regret, you know, the experiences I had playing college ball. So you don't think it, like, hindered you from – you know, succeeding in basketball. Well, that's the thing. The reason why it's a slight regret is because I don't think if I played baseball longer, I don't think it would have made much of a difference Difference, where I would have wound up. You know what I mean? I mean, I still would have probably found a way to get seen by college coaches and stuff. And at the end of the day, you go where your game takes you. You know, I was a Division II level player. Maybe you could play D1 at a certain program, but really a D2 guy. And that's where I ended up. I mean, I don't think that would have changed much. All right. Uh, so now we're in college. You went to Wingate first, right? And that's a school in North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, down in the, to the dirty south for a year. Yeah. Uh, right outside, a school right outside of Charlotte. Um, so so why did you choose Wingate? And like, wh- what was your initial thoughts? Like when you first got to um, your first practice, was it like, am I in over my head or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, n- not really. I feel like I picked a good level. Wingate was coming off an Elite Eight p- appearance in D2, and it was really the level. You know, they played in, an, in a, a small arena. It was a really great atmosphere. It was the local team in the area that people, you know. People came out to games and People stuff. came out to games. It was, yeah. Um, you know, our, our, our home court presence was very intimidating for teams. It was a really great atmosphere. And uh, I don't, you know, I chose that school and then I signed my letter of intent. And three months later, the first coaching change happened. The coach that literally got me to go there decided that he's taking a job in the financial world because he has four kids and apparently money isn't coming in the way it should, you know. So, yeah, I, I, right away I had to make a decision whether I stay there or try something else. And, you know, he told me I should still stay and everything. And obviously it's a new coach for everybody, but I played that year. And then essentially, you know, the new coach who was a really solid coach, he pretty much was real with everybody. He's like, Hey, I'm bringing in my own guys at the end of the year for next year. So you guys can, you know, a lot of you guys aren't going to have a spot or whatever it was. So I ended up being one of eight, to nine guys that transferred off that team that year. And people think that's a crazy situation. That's actually very common for a coaching change. I mean, D2 balling up, anything that involves scholarship is so cutthroat. If a new coach comes in and he doesn't like the team there to fit in his style of play, he's going to do something about it. And, and what he did about it was bring in eight freshmen and three JUCOs. And that's what he did. You know? So it was, um, it was pretty cut and dry. I was very upset. I I, I chose. I, I don't even think I answered the question yet because I rant like a, like crazy. But hey, I, I like I, it, dude. I chose Wingate to just kind of get away, try something new. I like the area. You know, there's like two pools on campus. Couldn't complain with that. I wanted to try, and and I I love living in the south. I could never live there full time, but I, it was in, it was nice to get away. And it was sad to leave because uh, you know you think about what could have been with the coach that actually recruited you there. But you know everyone was in that position, and. Uh, in the, you know, the majority of my teammates transferred to other schools down south, and I was the token Jersey boy that ended up transferring to a school a little closer to home. Yeah, Holy family. So yep. So what was it like when, when you got there? And obviously, we mentioned that you had five coaching changes, so that was one. <laughs> yeah, so. that was the first one, yeah. So then I, I played for a really great, amazing coach in uh, Alfred Johnson. Uh, the only year I played uh, in college for the guy that actually recruited me was with Coach Johnson. And uh, he was just a, the epitome of a player's coach. And uh, – you know, it was it was a, it was an atmosphere change when I got to Holy Family. Um, there, you know, and this is nothing against Holy Family, but uh, Wingate, there was a certain atmosphere when you have returning guys that went to the Elite Eight. They've been there. They tasted what the top of that mountain feels like, you know, and they wanted to get back there. Holy Family was just this program that was just in like rebuild mode, and it was just a ragtag crew of guys from between D two D one transfers like myself and to you know, a couple freshmen and returning guys. We had the we had the freshman of the year coming back, but we just we just never had the pieces to like. We could never just pull it together to like win games. It was a really tough season. And, so, uh, so knowing that though, yeah. like, you knew that it was like a ragtag bunch and they're rebuilding. So, what made you decide to choose? You know, Holy Family. You know, it's it's crazy when, again, when, when your livelihood's kind of on the line of where you want to play and, you know, to once you already lost your scholarship the first time due to really a lot of things that you couldn't control in a way, um, you know, the last thing you want is that to happen again. So when I was getting re-recruited, you know, the first thing you think of is like, am I going, like, like let's, let's put aside the location, the weather, the pools, the food, <laughs> the city I'm in, how much is, am I, am I going to get a pop in there? Like all that, that's, that's all, that's all BS. Like 
what school wants me? You know what I mean? Like what school is there going to be a future where I can be a part of it and I'm going to be treated that way? So they, that priority really hit me the second time okay. after you lost my, after I lost my scholarship the first time than it did when I was making the initial choice out of high school, you know? So that coaching staff was just very inviting, very friendly, and they made it clear that they wanted me a part of their program. And that's on top of being now only an hour and a half away from home that was really the deciding factor there. So, I mean, you, you know, and, and then obviously, you know, my coach, he ends up getting, uh, he ends up getting, uh, he ends up resigning the next year. And then, you know, two coaches after that, like it was just, uh, it was a weird time um, where again, it was just kind of like unlucky. But uh, the one thing that the whole experience taught me is just to, you know, it, it was humbling because every season, even if I had a good season on the court or a bad season, I was coming in that preseason having to reprove myself to a whole different guy. And 75% of the time, it was a coach that didn't recruit me or didn't know anything about me, you know? So my junior and senior seasons at Holy Family, my junior year especially, Coach John O'Connor was amazing and he got the best out of me. But that preseason was one of the toughest times of my life because I had to prove myself now to an incoming coach that was the head assistant at Georgia Tech for eight years. And he, in his head, he was bringing Georgia Tech to the Holy, the Holy Family. family. So you can imagine that clash for the first couple months of what we weren't ready for, the yeah, 5 a.m. didn't sign up for that. Yeah. Didn't sign up for that. Um, so what was that like? You know, like in terms – so you had a bunch of coaches, right? You had five coaches over your college career. Yeah. Not to put any of them down, but what was who was like the best leader that you had and that you connected the, the most with? So, yeah, I think those are two different – questions unfortunately because every coach is so different you know I right. mean I connected the most with coach Johnson by far um and again he was a great players coach you know he's the guy that recruited you to holy family yeah and and he coached a number of really great holy family teams before I got there that were very much like he was the kind of guy where he 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 he's your best friend on and off the court he'll always be there for his players and he recruits guys that he expects to go out there and, and get the job done with li with limited structure the problem with that team that year is we had a bunch of really good pieces but especially my game in particular i, I need structure you know I, I need to come down and be coming off a stagger screen or i need a ball a, a screen down I, I need a pick and pop i need i need something to the get my six foot six on athletic <laughs> caucasian body open for a shot because I'm telling you right now I'm not taking the ball like KD beyond the three-point line and breaking a dude down and dunking over somebody I could barely jump over an envelope so you know I, I could you dunk though of course so yeah I mean I'm six foot six I would hope I can dunk but you know I'm not the kind of guy coming down the lane and slamming it on you so you know I, I in high school and everything I always had you know I I thrived in a, in a good consistent offensive strategy whether it was flex motion offense whatever it may be and we had very limited structure, and, and it was a little difficult for me, and, and as well as a number of other guys. And I think that's why you know that team didn't mesh with how what Coach Johnson's positives were as a coach, because you know again he just kind of was expecting us to kind of you know figure it out in a way. And okay. the next coach that came in, completely different. Coach O'Connor was much more structure based. You know, everything was about details. And uh, he, I've never been so disciplined of a basketball player up until when I played for Coach O'Connor. So I'm thankful for that. Completely different. Not so much a player's coach. A lot more like I'm not your, I'm not your friend. I'm, I'm your coach. I mean, obviously, I care about you, but I'm not going to be like you know shooting the shooting the shit with you before practice every day. Right. So it was, um, it, it was a different mindset. But I, again, I had my best year on the court with him. And uh, we finally started to win a couple more games and be, be like, somewhat respectable, you know. And, uh, you know, it was uh, – um, I guess I'll, I'll just say this. I don't it – was, it was on the news and stuff. But he ended up uh, – one practice after a tough loss, he ended up, like, like knocking a, a kid over, uh, grabbing a ball out of his hands. We were doing a rebounding drill. And because we taped all of our practices – it it became Mike Rice situation. It was a Mike Rice situation overnight, and uh, but but without any of the the national. The, uh... No, it had the national coverage, but oh, without okay. it. But like you know, for only a week, I ended up giving a statement to Fox News and everything. Like it was crazy. So he he was forced to step down because of this situation. That if you saw the footage, it was about maybe five percent of what Mike Rice's video was. You know, oh, wow. it was just this kid was on a mission to try to press charges or whatever. Oh, and, seriously? Uh, yeah. So, so that, what did that do to the, to, the, to the dynamics of the team? 
it was it was just exhausting because now I knew that it was only a matter of time before Coach O'Connor was going to step down. And obviously it was, I mean, as exhausting as it was for us, I couldn't imagine the feelings he was going through. He right. put so much heart and soul into trying to rebuild this program, and uh, he was doing it. It was happening. It was it was coming through, you know, and 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 we were changing the culture there. I I, was, I watched it happen. I was the captain of that team. I, I, I front row seats to it. Right. And uh, for that to happen, man, was just uh, you know, obviously, you know, I never looked at the, that kid the same, you know. And we used to, we were friends before that happened, but uh, I I had to stand by my coach on that one and just make sure as many people as possible knew that what was going on wasn't right. But at the end of the day, you know, he had to, he, we had to go separate ways. He had to go separate ways from this, from the program. Have you talked to him since then? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I t- texted him a couple of weeks ago. He's doing good. He's, yeah. yeah. He's fine. And, uh, he coached, uh, he was an assistant in division one again for a couple of years. Now I think he's doing something else now outside of basketball, but I mean, that, that's gotta you know. stay with you. You know, like how can you get another head job? You know, I mean, it brought us very closely because I was literally calling him and I was like, you know, I, I let him know. I was like, I'm going to give, I have the whole team here. We're going to give a statement to Fox News how we support the coach in this situation after this video leaked, you know, and how it was just a tough practice. And, you know, he, I mean, we're, we're always like, it, it brought us even closer, um, me and him. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, but yeah, it just, when you talk about circumstance of, you know, a college career, I mean, I I pretty much hit every potential roadblock to keep the same coach for more than one year. So that was like the story of my of my your, four your years, career. pretty much. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot. So how'd you keep pressing forward? Like once you got a new coach, like how did you? How, what was your mindset like? Were you open to whatever they they came, or were, did you ever get like bitter? You know? Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of bitterment, a little bit of resentment, and a little bit of frustration, and uh, honestly, a little bit of fear. Um, it was more of you know, I, I'm not the, I was not the most athletic guy, so on paper, you know, well, it's the fear of the unknown, you know, the fear of the unknown. But that was, I mean, that was the first stage of my life. Um, even before I even knew I was gonna, you know, do comedy or do whatever else I do now, it was the first stage of my life where I was face to face with like. That fear of the unknown and that fear of the unknown for a a lot of reasons kind of got the best of me, Uh, especially by the time I was a senior because I was just kind of burnt out from the constant change and everything. Like stressful situations. Yeah, man. It was really, it was, it was a lot. And, uh, you know, I mean, I started playing, it started coming out how I played on the court. I was kind of, I felt like I was walking on eggshells. Each new coach had a different role for me, like in their head, who they thought I was and you know, you're talking about someone that played so free-spirited in high school and tried to take the energy in the college, and just because of circumstance, not because, he, he, I mean, all the coaches I played for are, 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 I think, great coaches and great guys. I don't have, a, like, I they're, they're all they're all completely different, but they're all great, but having to try to fit your game into all these different styles every year, you know, I, I let it get the best of me, and it was something that, it was the first stage of my life where I faced that fear of the unknown, and, uh, you know, I, 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 as much as I tried to overcome it, I feel like I could have did a better job in doing so. Uh-huh. So, so looking back on that experience and going through the constant coaches changes and you said like walking on eggshells, like no athlete should be, you know, feeling like they're walking on eggshells mm-hmm. around it's a, insane. A coach. Yeah. You can't perform it's insane. like that. You yeah. can like, think about it. Like, and I should have realized that like, like, you know, having this feeling, I mean, it's not going to help me as a player, you know what I mean? But you know, you come from. I mean, I was a. Uh, you know, my, like I was this big three-point shooter in 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 high school. It was I was like this you know, step out four guy that half my points came from beyond the three-point arc and stuff. And now I have a role in college where you just got to rebound. You got to box this guy out who's 29 and is fresh out six months ago, yeah. who's now a 29-year-old freshman getting his criminal justice degree because he realized the system's flawed. And now this guy's <laughs> averaging two points a game and 16 rebounds with some bony elbows, and he's coming for your neck all yeah. night. Yeah. And I'm sitting here like, if I don't out-rebound this guy, that completely justifies me as a player. It's like I didn't do my job. Right. When really, you know, I, like, again, because I'm with the coach that didn't recruit me, it was so much more of a process for him to realize all the things I could bring to the table on the basketball court. He doesn't know. And that he doesn't know, and, and nor should he. Nor should he. He's a first-year coach, and he doesn't know anything about me. Neither any of the other returning guys. And doing that so every, like your half-court trick shots at like yeah you know they stuff. yeah yeah they weren't a fan of my half-court trick shots or my tactical fouls for just having a bad attitude you know they weren't <laughs> i'm just messing but uh yeah like and so just imagine that process every year yeah. so by the time i was a senior yeah it kind of got to me a little bit so what advice would you tell you know 
18-year-old Sam uh, Mushman, or would it be – or, like, what, what advice would you have for an athlete who's destined for that, that life too? It's something that – and I guess we'll parlay this more into when we start talking about the comedy thing. But, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, – I think Tim Tebow made a point about this a couple of weeks ago, and I think you know, he kind of he, I think he kind of I do know that, which is why I think I secretly <laughs> said it. But um, you know, it's it's just funny, like you know, whether it's on in the sports world or whether it's in in life, you know, it's like there's always somebody that thinks that they know, you know, the right thing for you. Exactly. Yeah, and 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 you're, you you get told by all the way from your friends and family to people that are outsiders that you know, no, no, listen, I, I get you want to do this, but. This is where you're supposed to be, and you need to follow this path because this will be a nice, safe route. So you can have this, and you can have health insurance, and you can have everything else, and make sure that you know you have a couple of kids and live in a cul-de-sac, and blah blah blah. And you know, and all this, all these amazing things are all going to happen because you were safe and you were stayed in your box and your safe space, and everything was honky dory, you know. And it, it's a shame that you know society puts that on so many people, and it works, you know, because I feel like there's so much. There's so much more that people can give if they just, like, didn't have the fear of, like we said, that unknown. So my advice to players that, you know, whether they play for the same coach for four years or they're in a similar situation to what I just described is, you know, fear fear is a hell of a drug. You know, I said it, and I'm not trying to get political here, but it was very similar to what just happened in the election. You know, it's like fear is a hell of a drug. And fear can inspire a lot of people for, you know, the wrong reasons and also keep people in a certain way of thinking for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, if you really believe you can do something and you have a work ethic to do so, you know, the only way to achieve that is to block out the outside noise and to pursue that. And whether it doesn't look look good on paper right away, whether your friends are all going through rewarding stages of life and you just feel like you're, you know, stagnating in the middle of nowhere and everyone else is, you know, it's like... You don't know deep down what that person's going through. That person could be making, hey, you're, you know, you're looking at their Instagram highlight reel. You're not looking exactly. At, yeah. That person could be making six figures and and every day gradually resenting themselves and everyone else around them. You don't know, or maybe they're happy as a clam, and I hope they are. But at the end of the day, it's like you know, that's the thing. You know, it, it's you just just go for it, man, and, and and you know, don't let your don't let the fear and your thoughts clog that 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 creative process. So you're saying, like, if you have a coach who's telling you to be someone that you're not, right? Is that is that what you're saying? I'm just saying, like in general, like you know, I, every year there's, there's a you know, coaches like, oh, you gotta do this for me, you gotta do that. This is your role, and 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 that's great, absolutely. Do go out there and do your role for the team, but at the same time, like I, I let the fear of like if I wasn't doing that role, right, like, like get in my if head. You had the opportunity to pull up for a three, you exactly. didn't do it. Now I'm sitting. Oh, now if I pull up for this three right now and I miss it, yeah. I'm done. My night's over. Now I'm coming out of the game. Oh shit! If I if I try to drive to the lane right now, where I should have made that swing pass across to the wing because that's what the offense tells you you're supposed to do. Right. You know, where the next guy's catching the ball and he and he doesn't have that fear. Now he drives baseline and ends up scoring. And he's and he, you know, c- c- because he's playing free spirited. And, and right. basketball is a game. It's like instinctual, of, right? Like it, it 100%. takes it takes away your instinct, that fear. One hundred percent. And and you know, I would just get caught up in whatever the scanner reports that I needed to do. You know, trying to reprove myself and just staying within that lane. And it very much carried over into you know how I was like my first couple of years in, you know, I worked in working corporate America and stuff. And it was funny how, you know, similar people in that environment are trying to tell, you, you know, this is what you're supposed to do now. This is right. what your life is. And, you, you know, ever, you ever read the book, uh, four hour work week by Tim Ferriss? Yeah. Yeah. I've read bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that just reminds me of that because everyone works these like nine to five jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Like literally you, you show up at work nine to five, you punch a clock, you do whatever. He's like, why do people do that? He's like, you do it because everyone else does it. He's mm-hmm. like, but even though it doesn't make any sense, mm-hmm. you know, nothing like, about it makes any logical sense. No, like you're paying all this money for this huge ass corporate building for people to just sit in a cube and look at Facebook for like 90% of the day. Yeah, People are on Yahoo sports for like the first hour and a half. Yeah. And then they finally, yeah, there's like, there's studies that show like no work gets done within the first like hour, but he talks about deadlines, yeah. right? He's like, if you have a deadline, like you're going to get it done before the deadline, no matter how much time you have. Right. Yeah. He's like, whether you show up at eight, you know, yep. nine o'clock, like, whatever. yeah, on top of brick and mortar being one of the worst now financial investments a company can make because, you know, everybody, I mean, we have, we have, 
we have uh, state-of-the-art computers and iPhones and everything yeah, else. It's just it's it's ridiculous. illogical. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think like, and, and the reason I, I, I correlate the two is, is you know, obviously trying to play for a new coaches and that in a college basketball environment is completely different from, you know, staying in the same cubicle job for three extra years that you dislike. But at the same time, the fear that keeps you in both of those places is very consistent. So, right. you know, just the the whole thought process of like, you know, you just just believing in yourself and and just kind of not really not really getting caught up in what other people perceive you as. If you wake up every day, I, I wake up every day now and everything that I do in my life to make money or to fulfill myself, to strive to get towards what I'm working towards is enjoyable to me and it's rewarding. And to me, that's like I'm, I'm rich in self-worth. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I wake up every day now and everything I do, I do it with passion because I enjoy doing it. And I've spent the past three to four years trying to surround myself with things that constitute that. Yep. And at the point I am in life now, on paper, you would look at me and say, he's never been more confused. <laughs> but at the same time, to me, it's like I've never had more of a plan in what I want to try to do with my life and everything like that. And uh, obviously, comedy is a big part of that. But that's just the mindset that I've finally realized needs to be had. And it's a shame that so many people fail to not have that. All right, awesome. Okay, so before we transition to your your com- or comedy career, mm-hmm. did you have any injuries throughout your uh, career, a uh, basketball career? So, yeah, I mean, the, the other major thing uh, that really hurt going into that my freshman year at Wingate when, uh, you know, it was the first season of me trying to prove myself to a guy I never played for, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I had a great summer. I played in the Rutgers College League and stuff, was putting up good numbers there, and, like, you know, it was all Division One, Division Two guys. Um and I was really excited, right? And uh, I was literally playing pickup at Gold's Gym two weeks before I get on campus as an incoming freshman trying to make a spot on this returning Elite Eight team, you know? And I, I literally, like, severely, severely sprained my ankle, like, not the outside part, like the inside where it takes that extra six weeks to even walk on and stuff. Right. Severely sprained my ankle, and I was just a sprained ankle, but just the timing of it was just – heart was, was just gut-wrenching because now – I walked in my first day on campus. This More coach than- didn't recruit me again, you know, yeah. trying to make a name on this team and, and, and be respected on this team. And I'm walking around with a limp for the first two months. I'm trying to play on it because I just need to get out there. So I'm just getting my, my butt whipped and pick up and everything else because I'm, you know, it, it wasn't until December, January that that ankle totally healed. And by then, I mean, it was too late. You know, it's like I was Season's I wasn't like, in the yeah. rotation you know, I'm a freshman. The coach has no future in his head for me because he didn't recruit me. And that was really the beginning of the end for uh, my my time at Wingate. And as much as at the end of the year, you know, I was playing good in practice and showing that I should be have a spot in this team and everything. You know, it, it, again, I was one of nine guys to end up leaving. He was, he was rebuilding anyway. So... Um, that being said though, yeah, that, that was one, I mean, it's, it, people talk about, you know, obviously it's nothing that could compete with your story or guests that you have on the show about life or death injuries. I mean, that's a whole nother right, but that's thing. That's part of it though. Like but, it, it, I try to put things in perspective for people, but the majority of people who are injured, right. Have injuries like you, like yours are yeah. more common than mine. They're, exactly. But I think like my only point to that was, you know, the only thing devastating about an everyday injury that you're going to recover for is the timing of it. If, the, if sometimes Sometimes the timing could be what changes your career. And I do think that my freshman year could have been a lot different if I didn't come in with that severely sprained ankle, even though at the end of the day it's a stinking sprained ankle. Right. You know? so, but maybe you wouldn't have found comedy. Like you, you, you don't know. If I stayed in Charlotte, definitely not. No, I would have been. I don't know what I would have been doing in Charlotte. Probably been getting into like agriculture and trying to find out how to like come up with new hybrid versions of corn to feed like mass amounts of people. I feel like everybody yeah, has, has genetically like modified. <laughs> just working on gen- that would be my life. You're 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 genetically modified. You six six. Yeah, yeah. Giant. It was either telling jokes or or genetically modified <laughs> corn. So whatever route this went, it was going to be a little weird. All because of a sprained ankle. All because of a sprained ankle. <laughs> the corn industry was, I realized, was not for me. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, I, I'm glad we, we, we realized that as a collective unit, that that's what would happen. <laughs> All right, so when, like, did you see a, a comedy show that was like, you know what, like, I want to try this someday. Like, what about, like, 
I'm not saying that you weren't funny in middle school. Like we used to, I don't think I was. We used to giggle I, all the time. What, yeah. we, we made each other We were just laugh. idiots. We yeah, were, yeah, we had fun. But I was never like, you know what? This kid be, should be a comedian because like, he's just so damn funny. Yeah. But like, so what, nah, what made you want to do it? So, um, man, this is like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to like, it feels like, it's crazy. That, like I've only been doing it for like six years, but like it feels like so long. Six years is so, a long ass time, man. It feels so long ago. It feels so long ago. Um, so essentially, um, after like my soft, my first year at Holy Family, I was a sophomore in college. So I guess that was what am I like twenty years old? Um, yeah, I uh, I just started taking a liking to just to like certain stand up albums, you know. And I, I you know I listened to guys like especially you know Jersey guys like Greg Giraldo and like Dove Davidoff guys that were really uh, had a unique uh, voice and like the way they would tell jokes and it was just like. It's something about stand-up comedy came off to me more than any other art form as like just such a rock star type of art form for the guys that, that do it right and the legends of it. And uh, even though, you know, my jokes are nothing like his and even my perspective or anything like that, um, the one guy that really did, uh, uh, you know, influence you it, it, yeah well, I'm, I'm like lost for words like what, what's the word I'm looking for yeah and, and it influenced me as far as like stage presence and, and taking this art form and making it like a, a performance right. was definitely Dane Cook and you know people have their mixed opinions about you know the way he tells jokes or more so just long exaggerated weird stories but like at the same time I went to see him live down in Atlantic City and that whole performance really uh, changed my percep my my perspective on the art form because he just he was just a rock star up there. It was a it was not just a guy standing there with a microphone talking. It was a performance. It, it was a yeah. performance, and I just thought everything about it was so awesome um, that you know I, I got more obviously I was I enjoyed cracking jokes at the lunch table with my teammates <laughs> and stuff like that, and just starting to realize how people. How comedians would write real jokes that would, you know, relate to any, but hopefully you know, as many people as possible. I, it was an art form I felt like I needed to try. So, you know, I did a couple open mics uh, at a couple clubs in Jersey and stuff over the summer, going into my junior year of college. And so you just like Googled like open mic night. I'm yeah, just, I'm just gonna do this. Like, yep. Did you have anything prepared? Like, what yeah, was yeah. I wrote this horrific bit about like awkward experiences waiting in an elevator with a dude that like you just can tell you don't like him. You know, like it was it was the dumbest joke I ever wrote. And I don't remember how it goes. I did it at that one open mic, and I don't think I ever did it again. But I wrote a couple, you know, crappy jokes and went up there and got a couple giggles at an open mic, and uh, it was like just enough for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna keep uh, I'm gonna keep torturing myself. So you didn't doing this. you didn't completely bomb. Did you ever completely bomb that you're like? Every if a comedian ever tells you that he never completely bombed, he's completely full of shit. Yeah. Like yeah, like you know, Louis C.K. has bombed, Bill Burr has bombed, Dane Cook has bombed, Kevin Hart has definitely bombed. I'm, I can I can guarantee you. And uh, you know, in that first year, it's not so much about bombing; it's about like it's almost about like what do you take from it or like how bad was it? You know, because. Uh, you know, early on, yeah, my material was horrific. And, like, you know, what, what the only thing that got me laughs was that stage presence because that was the influence I very much saw from Dane Cook that inspired me to have a unique type of stage presence as well. And, uh, you know, I would, like, bomb every, like, third time on stage for the first, like, year, year and a half I did it. But the other two times I would get enough feedback where I knew that there was some sort of progression being made in it, and I obviously really enjoyed it. So I just kept working at it, and at some point, you, know, you you get to the point where you get like a consistent five minutes that you know will always be at least get chuckles, if not get like legitimate laughs, and then you get you work on that becoming a tight five that will always get at least laughs, if not applause breaks or whatever. Then that five turns to ten, ten turns to fifteen, and you know I'm at the point now where. I think you know I have a comfortable 20 minutes to half hour I can do on the road. Um, definitely don't have anywhere near an hour that would be the kind of level of material that I would want to have to do my hour. But uh, you know, it's 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 brought me a lot of really cool experiences. I've gotten to perform. I got I've, I gotten to perform before Colin Quinn on one show, which was really awesome. Um, I got to perform with a number of really great uh, national headliners on the on different road shows and uh, just the people you meet. On top of it, just obviously some of my, my most lifelong friends were comedians because we're all equally messed up and uh, we all just kind of relish in that together. Right, so. so I guess I feel like if I ever did that, I'd be so scared. And if I it wasn't like a success, I don't think I'd ever do it again. So like, yeah. So you're saying that you were successful enough 
that it made you. I guess at the moment it felt more successful because I mean, obviously, you, you you look back at it now, and anything I even said on stage up until like two years ago, I think is complete dog shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I guess as you progress, you know, I used to. I mean, if I look back four years ago, I think I really thought I had like a tight. 10 minute set that was just killer like no matter who listened to it it was gonna be amazing and then i realized i mean looking back at it now i don't even remember but like whatever 10 minutes i was doing four years ago was probably like relatable to you know douchey white males in the north jersey area and that's about it you know maybe (laughs) like like i'm not going on a road show with people my parents age and older and them having any respect for me as a comedian you know so it's like i mean the biggest thing is uh once you feel like you're funny to a certain group of people then you try to work on becoming a real comedian and 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 what i mean by that is trying to you know your book to go up there no matter what the crowd is no matter what demographic what age your job is to get to them and make them laugh and give them a good experience that's 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 awesome so so like was this this is you did this while you were in college right so a little bit yeah but do you feel like it made your transition to life after sports easier um, y- yes, yes, I do. Uh, because that was the main reason I moved to New York. Um, you know, I had this comfy nine to five job doing, uh, selling the commercials for uh, TV stations and stuff. It was, it was, a, it was, a, you know, it was a comfy little career that I could have stayed with if I, if I wanted to. Um, but I, I wasn't there for that. You know, you were was, there for it to be a comedian. 100%, 100%. I mean, cause if, if that motivation wasn't there, then I would have been fine staying in Philly. I would have been fine working in Jersey. It would have been fine working anywhere else. People work that you're not paying 65% of your income on rent as well as on, you know, uh, organic quinoa salads. You know, it's like I I could have lived anywhere. But in order to pursue comedy the right way, you have to break through the organic quinoa salads. You know, you got to be in there with them. You got to be you got to be where everyone's trying to make a buck, making homemade furniture with spiral mustaches and overalls. You got to immerse yourself. You got to immerse yourself in the New York hipster Brooklyn everything you know so I just and that's what I did I immersed myself in it um I would go up to do open mics every night like there there's no there's no blueprint to get to a certain level with this it's just kind of like school of hard knocks like going up there every night and you know watching a bunch of other bitter wannabe comedians not laugh at what you have to say and then try to get booked on a couple shows and then do well on those and make connections there and continue to just work on your your set and your voice so do you think that being an athlete helped you become a better comedian 100 percent, 100 in what in what ways in in uh in this in in the confidence needed in it and the resilience, because okay. there's a level of resilience there that, I mean, I, I, I tell everyone that tries to start, you know, they want to, you know, try to do comedy or whatever at some sort of level. I was like, yo, you, you got you better love this, because if you don't love this, then nothing else about it is going to make any sense. It doesn't make sense financially. It doesn't make sense what it takes up in your free time. It doesn't make sense feelings when you don't have the most ideal set when you're new. Because I can go up now. I mean, obviously, like, all nights where I was like, I'll leave the stage, and I was like, you know, I, I didn't really get to them the way I wanted to. But people will still come up after the show, be like, oh, I had a great time. You were funny, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there like, all right, well, this joke didn't work the way I wanted it to. This new bit I'm working on isn't really coming around the way. Now, like, my brain, it's like I'm breaking it down like a pitcher would break down like a 3-2 right. like, like count. It's like you're a student of the game. Just it's, like, exactly. Yeah, it, you it, break it's down. like breaking down like tape, you know? So I'll tape myself, and I'll watch this set that got laughs and whatever. But I'll be like, this was a horrific set, like, for me, or for the level that I want to get to. Right. But in the beginning, it's like, yeah, you have to just – you, you gotta love it because if not, and that's why you know so many, yeah, so many people do it for a couple of years, and they're just like, this doesn't make sense. I'm not doing it anymore. Right, you know? but you've you've kept strong, and I, I could, you feel like you're progressing the way you want to. Or? I mean, yeah, I've got to do some cool stuff. I mean, you no, know, again, like there's no right or wrong way to make it in the entertainment industry. You know, it's like yeah, everyone does it differently. You gotta. I think the biggest thing you gotta do is take what you know about what you're knowledgeable in or what your talents are, and just try to immerse yourself into like that brand, right? And that's your own I, little niche. Your own little niche, and that's exactly what I was tried to do with Backcourt Violation. You know, I found another comedian that played basketball at a high level and 
we love talking. I just burped into the mic. I'm sorry about that. But I just uh, it's like a water burp. Apologize, people. But uh, I, you know, I found another comedian that played at, my, at you know at the same level I did. We love talking hoops. We love cracking jokes. We're like, you know what? Let's combine the two and make a platform for basketball talk where you want to you want to hear analysis of college basketball. We all want to that. laugh at the same time. But yeah, it's not that serious. It's not some clam in a suit going. Oh, oh, the motion offense just didn't work the way it was supposed. Like it's like no. Let's talk about two students of the game that played it, you know, oh, why didn't so-and-so win this game? Well, because this guy didn't take over when he needed to, and this guy, and if you, and then we and then talk to somebody that lived that experience and, and hear what it's like off the court, you know, and do all of that in a comedic way. You know, that's kind of like the backcourt violation brand, but, you know, that, that that's that's the key, you know, whether whatever interests you have, likes you have, try to combine that and find your niche within the entertainment industry. I mean, that's the only way I feel like you can do it. Right. One of my recent interviews was with a sports psychologist, Dr. Jared Spencer. Mm-hmm. And something that he was interesting that we talked about was like practicing what you're good at. Yeah. He's like everyone practices, like tries to get better at what they bat, what they're bad at. And he's like, it's such a waste of time. A lot of, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, what you were saying there. Mm-hmm. Like find your niche and like make yourself the best in that niche. Yeah. Know? Um, but we talked about being a student of the game and how that relates to being an athlete and a, and a comedian too. Yeah. But just based on what you're saying, it sounds like there's so much preparation involved. Like, you know, you have to prepare to be an athlete by breaking down game film. But at the same time, like when you're a comedian, you got to know your audience and stuff like that. So like, how do you prepare for um, a, a show and it, how is it similar or different than when you were preparing for a game as an athlete? So the – um. V- very accurate with that um, analysis, but there is one uh, difference uh, to it where in I feel like in sports, you know, as you get to a higher level, the preparation almost increases, right? Because you got scout reports, you got everything you know about your matchup, and everybody out there can go off on any given night, so you better be ready, you better know what you're going up against, right? In comedy, that that timeline is actually reverse, I think, it, it, at least to me. Maybe And I guarantee you if you interviewed a different comic, maybe Vince might tell you something completely different. Maybe another comedian would tell you something different. But for me, you know, in the beginning when, you know, your material wasn't as strong and you were just getting used to memorizing jokes and my crowd work wasn't there yet, which is pretty much going off the cuff with the crowd whenever, you know, if 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 that show, if it makes sense to do so, you know, there was so much more preparation for me in the beginning than there is now because at this point now it's just about take you know I go into a show I look at the audience and I, I I see how the host does or how the first guy up does and I just break down what what are these what are these people looking for you know a comedy club in New York City uh, weeknight at Stand Up New York or the Stand you got a bunch of a lot of millennial people or the New York City people that understand how a comedy show works. You know, we're sitting down. We want to hear intelligent, funny jokes, and we're going to sit there. We're going to laugh when we think it's funny. It's as simple as that. So on shows like that, you put your set together. You stick with your set. You better have your jokes on point. Maybe maybe review your punchlines one more time so you say everything fluidly. But at the end of the day, you know that you're probably not going to go up there and start doing crowd work, right? Now, when I'm featuring for some local guy in Lidditz, Pennsylvania at an American Legion bar for a fundraiser show for ex-war veterans, that's a lot. That's a mouthful, right? Yeah. I did that show about <laughs> a year ago. Now you're going in there. you got a bunch of guys with their arms crossed looking at you like, I fought for your freedom and this is what you give me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just that whole vibe. I'm watching the local host just miserably bomb, trying to do some dumb joke about Obama. You know, And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, these guys aren't going to laugh at anything you have to say about anything. And really, why should they? They fought for your freedom. They're here. They're not really sure this is all about. They've they never been to a comedy show. Right. You know, they they honestly don't know what the hell's going on. So, so how, did that, how did that show? So go? that's 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 a show. You walk up on stage, maybe you make an observation about about one of the war veterans and his wife. You maybe compliment him by kind of passive aggressively throwing a dig at something about his appearance. You get his friends laughing at him. Next thing you know, you move to the next table next to him. There's a guy with a weird you know co- uh, Confederate flag T-shirt. You can do some riffing about that. <laughs> a couple of Donald Trump jokes. All of a sudden, now you got two tables on your side, and all of a sudden, you know I. You, you end up doing crowd work that you have didn't prepare at all, just off the cuff, the first seven to ten minutes of the show, and now everybody's laughing, everyone's listening to you, and now, 
at when I still have 20 minutes left to do my set, now I'm going to do a joke that I wrote. <laughs> now I'm going to do a, a joke that I do all the time. And because they already realize like, they have like it's like a respect level. They're okay. This guy poked fun at us. He's quick. Like he might poke fun at me. I'm gonna listen to him. And now all of a sudden, my material's working. Where if I went up there right off the right off the rip and started telling the jokes that like especially it, it especially being a, a New York City liberal, you know, going up there talking about some of the jokes that I do, it wouldn't be the same. And you know, so preparation wise, you just. That's, you know, I just knew to do that, and I mean, it's more of like, that, and that just comes with time. Like, obviously, if this was five, four or five years ago, I'd never be able to go up into a room like that and just start doing crowd work, but it's like it's like a muscle. It's anything. Right. When you exercise that muscle, you exercise that just off-the-cuff type of Quick thing, thing yeah. it becomes second nature, and, and now it's like, I don't even prepare the crowd work. I used to go up there and look at a couple people in the audience and be like, okay, I could probably make fun of that guy about that, whatever. No, I go up there on stage, and I look at people for the first time, and, I, and whatever comes to mind, I just start going, and, and you know, about 75% of the time, they end up getting behind whatever you're poking fun at, and it just creates a, a, a level of comfortability. So, you know, that's why, again, it comes down to the crowd you're in. You got to know your audience. That's the end of the day. Right. So I'm sorry. I'm thinking like audibles, right? Like mm. you can't you can't go. Great comparison. Great yeah. comparison. Like you can't go into it like reading off a script. Right? Like no one's going to think that's funny. Can't. And like you said, like you don't know who's going to be in the audience always. Never. But yep. what I could tell from what you're saying is like you're definitely like a deep level thinker. Like I could, I could just – I don't know. I mean, for better or for worse, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So like, you're you're analyzing, you know, what have you ever? What about overthinking? Have you ever like overthought, you know, an audible? One hundred percent. You know, I mean, the next thing you know, I mean, but but you can still save yourself from an overthought. I think an example of an overthinking is your first crowd work joke. You to completely just uh, offend this woman with her whole with, with her with her whole family and her ugly kids now they all hate you you know and you're and now you're stuck in the <laughs> middle of up, laugh, yeah. yeah and now you're stuck in the middle of upstate new york and you're like you're like the liberal devil up there just trying to like entertain people so you got to come back from that so then you go okay maybe i overthought that joke a little much maybe i'm gonna just you know compliment some other people in the crowd or do a couple jokes that are a very simple punchline. i'm not gonna start talking about you know whatever it may be you know you have to get to a point with not only your crowd work but your material that you have enough different type of material that could relate to any type of audience. Like I'm at Willow Creek Winery next Saturday. I, I do these shows for them every winter. And it's down in Cape May, New Jersey, and the average, the median age there is going to be uh, about 52 and up, right? So you're oh. doing your scouting report now. So it, it, it's essentially like I'm going through my, my material and I, and I was like, I haven't done this age group consistently in a minute. I'm like, what new jokes have I wrote this summer that could relate to that to that crowd? And I remember I was talking to my girlfriend about this. She's like, oh, well, you have a bunch of new material now from the summer that you could bring to Willow Creek. And I was like, really? You think so? Let's go through it. And I just <laughs> named each one. I was like, yeah, no, I can't do that. I can never get into that. I'm definitely not doing that. So, and, and out of the new 15 minutes maybe that I have added to my set this past summer, I could do about three of them. I get about three three new minutes for this Willow Creek show because you just got to know your audience. I'm not going to do jokes about social media or jokes about Black Lives Matter or jokes about it's just not going to happen. Right. So you know it's 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 all that's really just the name of the game. Just having enough yeah enough ammo In for back, yeah. yeah. Um, where do you get your material from? Uh, I mean, like life experiences. Yeah, that's definitely obviously the main one. I think any comedian would say that. Uh, I guess for me, you know, I, I do a lot about observationally, you know, like my height and stuff, funny stuff like that. I talk about basketball. I, I do actually basketball material that I try to relate to anybody, you know, like I always, like, like I did a, a joke about, like I said, the Black Lives Matter thing. I did a joke about the hashtag All Lives Matter, but I did it in a, I turned a basketball joke into a joke about, our political standpoint on all lives matter, right? So to make now you make a basketball joke relatable to anyone that follows MSNBC, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so like an example would be like I saw a meme, right, during the NBA All-Star weekend and I always say like you ever see something on social media that just represents all the evil in America? You know, I saw this meme and it said it had a picture of LeBron James and it said the 2016 NBA All-Star game has zero white players. Boycott for more diversity, <laughs> hashtag NBA so black, and I and I look at the crowd and I watch all the timid white people and I'm like, I'm like, 
All right, and I'm just going to tell you right now, white people, calm down. I'll bring this full circle. Don't worry. We'll all get out of here alive. It's going to be okay. And I was like, and I saw this meme, and as a, as a former college basketball player, I could obviously say this was a meme created by a bunch of salty white players who never made it. However, it would be interesting if social media was around like 50 years ago because I feel like the black players would have had a very similar meme. But the meme probably would have read more along the lines of, the 1952 NBA All-Star game has zero players that can dunk the basketball. Right. You know, boycott for better basketball players, guys. You know, like, hashtag NBA so boring, hashtag too many layups, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then to bring a full circle, I'm like, you know the white players will come back a week later with some salty stuff like, hashtag all layups matter, hashtag right. two points is two points. So <laughs> now we're doing a, a joke about all lives matter where the, the joke is it's just a way for – people not of color to try to dismiss the problem that's going on in society by saying oh you know you didn't get yours too yeah. you didn't get your cake but everyone still could not get their cake as well you right, know right, and, right. and but it's a basketball joke yeah. so you know like, like that's that's an ex- a great example of a joke i wouldn't do in Lidith, in in in, in Lidith, or up in uh up in you know rochester new york it just wouldn't happen so right. wouldn't work. You know, yeah um have you ever felt like you went like too far in a joke all the time all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what happens when you like? How do you rebound from that? You know, it's just this. Just that's just comedy. I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it, man. Yeah, it's just comedy. I mean, I usually not not so much. Um, I'm happy with where my my material has gone in the past couple of years, where I feel like I've gotten much cleaner and I've gotten more wittier with my material. It's not so just douchey. I, I look like a frat boy up there talking about social media and talking about being single. You know. Now it's like I think my materials come a long way. Um, you know, that being said, I just uh, – the one thing I still want to work on is I, I feel like I, I, I curse too much up there on stage. Like just unnecessary curse words in between like a really clean joke. Right. And now all of a sudden that joke feels dirty, but it's not. I'm talking about, I'm talking about a coffee shop. Yeah. Talk about ordering a mocha coffee. But I, I happen to say MF real quick just because – I was I was born and raised listening to you know Bon Jovi and being like 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 a New Jersey and listening to like you know freaking Doug Stanhope stand up as a kid you know and right. now it's like I just naturally you know just happen to curse in my everyday language so there's all little tweaks you can make to your voice to try to make yourself but um you know I I think the farthest when I crossed the line would definitely be in a crowd work setting because now it's off the cuff. You're just saying the first thing that comes to your mind that you think people are going to laugh at. And majority of the time they do, even when it's offensive. But there's so many times where I've gotten the entire crowd to almost gang up on one person. And I, you feel kind of bad about it afterwards because you're like, this person didn't deserve They're this. Bad. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't come here for this. They didn't come here for this. <laughs> so then like throughout the set, I'll try to do like a call back to that person and do more build crowd work and bit. build them up. Yeah. And it's funny when you call when you do a call back to them because now they're just horrified. They're like, really, dude, you can't just leave me alone. But it's like, it, but then they realize I'm like, no, dude, I'm like, I'm on I'm your on team your right now. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to help you. Out. So yeah, you know, it's but but that's like I said, that that's just that's the nature of the game. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so we kind of brought up the topic of race, right? So I'm sure you found yourself at your elite levels of basketball being, you know, one of the only white players on the team. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what influence did that have on maybe your comedy career or athletic career? You know, what what did you learn from being the minority on a basketball team? Yeah, I think it had a I think it had a a, a big influence on how I perceive society and how I um and also a big influence on my comedy career because, you know, when you're not, I mean, so many people, you know. Again, I'm trying to really stay away from political here. This isn't that type of podcast. But, like, you know, it, it's so many people have, obviously, they're, it's so easy to have certain really strong views on things where you grow up in, in the same area where everybody looks just like you, you right. know? Like Long Valley, where we grew up. Exactly. Yeah. Or every other uh, Red County from the map. I'm done. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> <laughs> I'm done, I promise. But, uh, no, it's, it's – I mean, to, to be to be like the token white guy, right, on, on like a basketball team and stuff, and just to really see, like – just being surrounded by a culture that wasn't yours growing up in Long Valley, being surrounded by different types of people, different walks of life, and understanding that everybody has problems, but everybody has different problems. And there's a lot of problems that, you know, obviously 
whether you want to call it white privilege, it's what it is, or yeah, it whether, exists. You yeah, know, sure. obviously that word makes white people uncomfortable. So maybe you can find a better version of it. But what it is is white privilege. You know, yeah. it's like you just come for from, being born white. You are automatically you there's know. just there's just certain things in society that obviously you know we don't have to worry about. That my next friend, you know, if, like I'll be walking around with a friend of color, and and he does. You know what I mean? So you know, it comes out not only in my comedy, but I think more just in my views on, you know, what's going on in society and everything like that, I'm so thankful to be, to have used basketball to put me in situations where I am in the minority. I'm around different cultures. I see what other people are going through, even though I I can't relate to it. I can see it from an outsider looking in. And you understand that there's, there's a lot of hate out there and there's a lot of ignorance out there. There's a lot of people just not understanding people. I think SNL killed it with a skit they recently did where Tom Hanks played a redneck Trump supporter and throughout, and they were playing Black Jeopardy, right? And uh, throughout the show, Tom Hanks is getting all the questions right about Black Jeopardy because what they're showing is that there's a lot of people in that, in that community that are a lot similar to a lot of people in the inner cities community. Those communities have a lot in common. Right. And if people ever know, sat back and realized that, that yeah. I think we'd be able to make a lot of progress, you know? But, um, you know, again, not trying to be political or anything like that, but just self-awareness of other people around you, other cultures around you, self-awareness of what is best for society where, you know, you got to come together. You you can't have a a mindset where as long as it's happy in, in, in happy white land, that that means it's great for everybody else because it's just so far from the truth, you know? And yeah, basketball helped me do that. And even comedy now, being around so many different diverse types of comedians and hearing their perspectives on things, whether it's making humor out of it or even make anger. You know, obviously there's a lot. I mean, we're, we, we live in a very divided country right now. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people that are just, just don't understand each other. And if, if we just took the time to try to do that, you know, I'm lucky to have been almost forced to be around cult- other cultures that aren't like mine. Yeah. And I think it helped me as a person. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure. So as an athlete, like, did it make you nervous when you you know, when you're the only white guy on the team? Like, how did your team oh, yeah. like, embrace I, you? I I'd guess? be lying in the beginning if I, if I, if I didn't say I wasn't a scared shitless little white boy going into an all black gym to try to make this AAU team when I was like 12, 13 years old after growing up in Long Valley, New Jersey for right. 12 years, you know, but like I said, you know, and, and also, yeah, they didn't accept me in the beginning. They're like, they're like, okay, we, we they're like, 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 think about put, put yourself in their shoes. We just won number third best team in the state, right, without you. And now our coach feels the need to go to the country to recruit, like, a token white dude that can shoot the ball and pass the ball a little bit, you know. And now this guy's here, and he gets to go to Orlando, Florida with us when he wasn't a part of it. On top of it, he's white. You know, it's like, why would they accept you? They they, they shouldn't. Like, like, that respect is earned, not given. So, you know, at the same token – it was it was a really rewarding experience for me to still you know kind of earn that respect over time and still keep in touch with a lot of friends from that team today and that helped me also prepare for college because in college I was for the most part in the minority as well obviously it's just the nature of the game so you know um, yeah it was uh, obviously there that nervousness totally existed in in the beginning when you know I was in when we were like in junior high school yeah definitely um, so as we kind of wrap up the interview here. How do you think sports can benefit from comedy, like adding more comedy into sports? That's exactly what I, I want, you know, I want backcourt violation to, to try to achieve. You know, I think sports can vastly benefit from comedy because, you know, sports, it's, it's you know, some of the some of the hardest working people ever have that I know in my life were college athletes of some sort and have come from that environment. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, it, it's such a, it's such a cutthroat, serious business in so many degrees, especially at a certain level, you know, that if we could if we could have more of a comedic relief in sports and kind of have the two, you know, more simultaneously combined, I think it will, you know, I, I think athletes are, are, are people that are, you know, they take risks, they take chances, they put themselves in uncomfortable positions, and those types of people... I think like to laugh at themselves, like to laugh at others, like to laugh at just things in society in general. And, you know, the personality types that are in comedy and sports are very similar, very, very similar. So to be able to. In what way? Explain that. In what way? Um, I guess to really put it into, in, 
into words would be just just similar similar in 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 mindset. Comedians have to be very open minded. You're talking to different crowds every single night, and you're you're a lot of times getting put on shows where you know the crowd. There's a couple, only a couple people in the audience. The crowd's awful. You know you got to really dig deep and try to find a way to entertain people, and that happens as a comedian every other night. That that's just that's just part of the job. Right. What's well, also part of the job as an athlete is coming out after a long game where you played 30 minutes, you took an ice bath, your your, your joints are, ank- are aching, but you're the captain of this team. You got to come out here and run these sprints and run suicides and have a great practice the next day, um, even though you know damn well that you need the most rest out of anybody on that team. Let's say if you were the star player of a basketball team, you know it's it's just uh, adversity. Adversity is hit in comedy every day the same way adversity is hit in sports. And people that like the adversity and, and thrive in it, you know, that's a certain personality type that really is consistent in, in both art forms. So, you know, to, to be able to have, you know, and, and that's very similar to what you do on this podcast for bringing in, you know, real personalities that had major adversity in sports, you know, I try to do it on a, on a much more lighthearted, lighthearted yeah. level. We're trying to bring in people that played through adversity in sports or, you know, or comedians that understand that, that, that also played understand so, the struggle. Yeah. And, and just kind of talk about it in a, in more of a fun, you know, loving type of comedic way. Uh, but yeah, that, that's where I definitely would think those industries really, I think of like, College baseball, like you know, yeah. uh, guys in the dugout—they're all doing all sorts of like dumb stuff, or they have some like voodoo doll that like is yeah. their like good luck charm, or oh, whatever. Yeah. Or like the Mammoth basketball team. <laughs> it's so so funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that stuff like makes sports fun, right? And, and honestly, it should they, be fun. Those are amazing examples. Like, like like that actually like that's a great thing. Like in one like video clip, you can watch either one of those those versions, and you can see how sports and comedy are so related. Right. And there's got to be a correlation between success and fun, right? Like, Absolutely. If you're not having fun, you're, you're going to be miserable. Like, well, and, you're not going to win. And it, it gets back to what not only sports but mainly comedy did for me is getting back to, you know, being able to overcome that basic society fear of not wanting to go for something that could make could create more adversity in your life or create more – more, uh, you know, long nights and and tiresome days, you know, just to stay in that safe space and just do what makes sense on paper. You know, I mean, sports athletes and comedians have both decided to make the decision to do the latter and to, to put not, themselves outside their comfort zone. One hundred percent. And, you know, so that's what that's what comedy and the combination of sports has. I, I'm, I'm thankful for that gift, that realization of just going for what you think is going to make you happy over what makes sense on paper when you're at that happy hour, that passive-aggressive cocktail party with your friends or that high school graduation. I mean, not that, uh, you know, five-year high school reunion where everyone's trying to one-up each other and what they're doing in life. Yeah. It's all bullshit. It's all just – it's all nonsense. It's all – do you wake up, up every day excited about what you're about to do? Do you get amped up for the next day about what you're on your plate? If not, then, you know, put you yourself get, in a position to do so. Exactly. If you do, then in, in my book – You have the choice. Yeah. In my book, you're doing something right. Right. Awesome, dude. Um, so just as we close the interview, can you give us like a, a one-liner adversity uh, joke or for like an injured athlete or something? A one-liner adversity <laughs> joke for an injured athlete. <laughs> That <laughs> will probably, if that joke comes out the wrong way, will take incredible offense right, to right, it. Yeah. Um, how about for not an just, injured athlete? How about uh, – How about you just ask me just, uh, hey, can you play like five-finger filet on this table right now and hope everything goes well? <laughs> can you do that? There, there's my adversity joke. I'll play five-finger filet, and I'll tell the viewers, trust me, everything will work out just fine. I guarantee you I'll walk out unscathed 100%. <laughs> no, man, but uh, I mean to just – as far as like a, a closing statement um, to, you know, athletes, uh, you know, <laughs> Laughter is such a powerful thing. And when you're going through adversity, we all go through different levels. And what seems like nothing to one person is major to someone else. At the same time, I just think laughter is such a powerful medicine, you know? So that's why I want to continue. I want to have work to getting my podcast, you know, more out to those types of people that need that laughter while they're in that, that sports grind. I think it's such a powerful thing. Awesome, dude. I think that's great for it, it, that's. I don't think you could have said anything more perfect for yeah. someone listening to this who might be in that injured category, right? Because you mean the five finger fillet thing, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> no, nah, man. I, again, and uh, thanks again for having me, dude. I really appreciate it, man. And we're about to just so the viewers know we're about to go, go get a couple drinks, 
couple maybe mimosas, some Bloody Marys, catch up on life. Yeah. It's much needed. Some some good food here in Morristown, New Jersey. There's plenty of options. So. Yeah, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Sam. Appreciate Absolutely, it, dude. Absolutely, dude.